You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 488 of this podcast. Today is Tuesday, October 25th, 2022. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about whether more or fewer guns make society safer. And with a special view, we are considering this topic in relation to what does the Bible say about turning the other cheek? Should Christians own firearms and should Christians support firearms ownership or the Second Amendment, as we call it here in the United States? The Second Amendment to the Bill of Rights says that the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. A free people is necessary and that In order to keep a people free, they have to be able to defend themselves, not just against criminals, not just against wild animals, not just against savage Indian tribes that might attack them as they're camped out on the plain or building their cabin in the woods. No, no, also against tyrannical regimes at home, which seek to deprive them of their life, their liberty, and their pursuit of happiness God-given rights. But what do we make of the Second Amendment as Christians? What do we make of this idea that Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the one cheek, turn to them the other also? What do we make of Romans 13 with regards to the governing authority bearing the sword for something, and you're supposed to be subject to the governing authorities? So what do we make of all that in relation to current debates and headlines and statements from governing officials here in the U.S. on both sides of the aisle, so to speak. Not that there's only two parties, but there's primarily the Republican Party and the Democrat Party. Those are the options in the main. Everyone else is just more or less wishful thinking, I suppose, in my view. But Starting us off, let me, before I get into the meat and potatoes, explain that I have not podcasted since Saturday, in large part because there's been a lot going on. There's been busyness. I've had kids who were not feeling well, who were under the weather. I've had a sudden uptick in kids having accidents or accidentally hurting themselves doing things that uh, maybe were excessively risky. Take, for instance, 
one of my sons, having thought it would be really fun to show his brothers what it's like when he takes the chin-up bar that hangs in the doorway to their bathroom and takes a running jump onto it and then throws his body weight, whips his body so as to jump, basically, and make the bar come off of the doorframe so that he lands on his feet with the bar in his hands. That did not quite go as expected, and he landed on his butt instead, on the floor, and ended up having a little bit of uh, discomfort, shall we say, as a result, and then also wasn't feeling particularly well. Otherwise, seemed to have a little bit of a cold or something from the weather changing. Take also, for instance, another one of my sons, or two others of my sons, playing ball after church on Sunday, and one of them landing on another one of them in a way that was pretty hard. It wasn't intentional, but he was running for the ball backwards, wasn't looking where he was going, and piled into and then on top of his brother, who then proceeded to land hard on the uh, floor of the sanctuary at church. Uh, Or also take, for example, one of our sons, playing with a piece of stretchy elastic that I think came with my newest boom arm for the microphones or for the podcasting. I've actually ordered a second microphone, just like the first one, just like the one I'm recording on right now. I think it's supposed to be here Thursday. I'll have to check tracking again. But when it comes in, I'll have actually two microphones plugged into my computer, and it will be very possible with the new boom arm and the new microphone to conduct interviews in which both I and the person being interviewed, whether it's my family or friends or whoever, can sit fairly comfortably in my office and carry on a conversation while podcasting. Well, as I say, this new boom arm has already arrived, even if the microphone that it is going to be connected to hasn't yet. And there was some weird, stretchy piece of elastic that all I can compare it to uh, is... You know, those uh, hair bands that girls and women use to get their hair out of their face like that, but like five or six times that size, like one of those, but made for a giant. And in the middle of it, to clasp it together was this hard plastic piece. And again, one of my sons playing with that, uh, trying to shoot it at his brothers or his sister or some uh, inanimate object in the yard, pulled it back all the way yesterday afternoon and it snapped and it hit him in his left eye. And I have not ever heard that son of mine uh, so upset and so in pain. And uh, I was really very, very seriously concerned that he might have destroyed his eye. Now, my wife took our son to the doctor, to the eye doctor this afternoon, and rest assured, we're taking every precaution, but basically, long and short of it, it's very angry. His eye is very angry, and there's some uh, trauma to the eye, no two ways about it, but we're told if he takes it easy, 
and doesn't hit it with anything else, uh, it should heal just fine. If he's not careful and if he injures it again, uh, he could potentially cause some really long-lasting and uh, pretty extreme damage to that eye. So that's been my past several days having, for some reason, I don't know if it's the weather change or if it's the election coming up or if it's something in the water, I don't know what it is, but I've been dealing with uh, some children who've been very accident prone the past week for some reason. Also dealing with my final days at Chevron last week and starting my new job as a controls programmer with global resource design. As of yesterday, my first day went well. It was fairly uneventful. It was mostly shaking hands, making introductions, being introduced to not only the personnel, but also the facilities I'll be working in and around and with. But yesterday and today, both very much occupied with trying to make sure that I'm ready for that, making sure that I'm doing well, making good first impressions, focused, paying attention. And today being my second day and uh, having wrapped up my second day, it's late afternoon, heading into the evening. And I thought to myself, before we get too far from the last recorded podcast episode, I'm going to get into talking about this question which centers on a few things I've read in the news recently, also something that was sent to me by my friend, Alex Cassetta, and there's no time like the present. Carpe this DM, Garrett. So first of all, as we get into the meat and potatoes, uh, I'm glad to be podcasting, even though it's been so busy. And I hope once I get into a rhythm here, it will not be so difficult, it won't be that I am uh, spacing out my episodes quite so much. Uh, It does sound like I'll have a fair amount of flexibility as far as work schedule and being able to podcast when the spirit leads, as the spirit leads. But without further ado, let's jump right in to this question. So one of the things I've read in the past week was a story from the Daily Wire, Charlotte Pence Bond reports, October 21st, 2022, in an article titled, Justin Trudeau Officially Freezes Handguns. She quotes Justin Trudeau at a press conference in Surrey, British Columbia. We have frozen the market for handguns in this country. Uh, This, as you might imagine, comes in the wake of Canada restricting the import and sale of handguns. They don't want to import handguns from outside of Canada Also, they are restricting the sale of handguns within Canada. Another quote from Justin Trudeau, Canadians have the right to feel safe in their homes, in their schools, and in their places of worship. With handgun violence increasing across Canada, it is our duty to take urgent action to remove these deadly weapons from our communities. Today, we're keeping more guns out of our communities and keeping our kids safe. End quote. Now, a few things. One, you don't have the right to feelings. Can we just be clear about that? You don't have the right to feel a certain way, one way or the other. It's very interesting to me that Justin Trudeau recognizes a right for Canadians to feel safe, but he doesn't recognize the right of Canadians to own firearms with which they could actually defend themselves 
and their families and their loved ones and their property. They have the right to feel safe. They don't have the right to actually be safe, I guess, is the way I am reading this. Very unfortunate. To say we're going to have fewer handguns, fewer guns, fewer firearms in our communities, and that's going to keep our kids safe. Uh, for a Canadian to say something like that is uh, deserving of a hard question and requiring an answer to that hard question. Does it matter more whether there are more or fewer guns or who owns those firearms? Big question. Big question. And I'll give you a hypothetical to explain what I'm talking about. Let's suppose you and I get airdropped into Ukraine and there are Russian soldiers milling about. There are mercenaries from countries that are in Vladimir Putin's orbit milling about, doing all manner of things. And there are also Ukrainian citizens who have been conscripted to defend their country. There are also uh, fighters from all over Europe and all over the world who have come, especially from the U.S. and from Europe, who have come to Ukraine to help repel the Russians. Let's suppose you get airdropped and you're Justin Trudeau and you say, all right, everybody, hand in your guns. Let's see them. Come on. Let me have them. Fewer handguns are going to make our community safer. I'm part of your community now. Fewer handguns are going to make our community safer. And let's suppose in this hypothetical that the Ruskies tell you <laughs> in their own special way, uh, niet. <laughs> niet. <laughs> well, let's suppose they say niet. And so then you turn to what you perceive to be the path of least resistance, which would be the Ukrainians. You say, okay, well, the Russians won't give up theirs. All I'm looking to do is reduce the overall number of firearms in this neighborhood. I live here now. I want to feel safe. I have a right to feel safe. All Ukrainians have a right to feel safe. And so I would really appreciate it if you would turn in all your firearms and stop bringing more firearms into Ukraine. What do you think the Ukrainians are going to say to you? Do you think the Ukrainians are going to say, da, and just give you their firearms, just hand them over like that? Well, probably not. Probably not in part because I guess the Ukrainian word for yes is not da. That's Russian. But Ukrainian, I believe, would be tak. But I don't think they're going to say that either way. I think they're going to say ni unto you. <laughs> they're going to be the knights who say ni. <laughs> I do believe that the Ukrainian word for no is ni. True story. Look it up. They are the knights who say ni. But I think they're going to laugh at you. If they don't shoot you, they're going to laugh at you. Because that's crazy town, given the circumstances. And my point is, if you are Justin Trudeau 2.0, dropped into the Ukrainian conflict, it matters a great deal whose guns are being given up or taken away or restricted and whose continue to be in their possession along with ammunition and uh, dirty hands, shall we say. So this is just silly. It's just silly for Justin Trudeau to say, all right, no more handguns, no more ammunition. Canadians have a right to feel safe. 
that's a very uh, superficial and very patronizing and very wrong-headed and uh, in conjunction with everything else that he's promoted and supported and advocated for and pushed, uh, I would say this is just another evidence of a tyrannical tendency on the part of Justin Trudeau. But moving on, speaking of somebody who is actually uh, thought by the left to be tyrannical or despotic or a dictator, uh, in his most recent Sunday special, weekly Sunday special, Ben Shapiro interviewed Jair Bolsonaro, president of Brazil, which was pretty fascinating in general to watch. I don't think I watched the entire thing. I watched most of it. And then other things came up because, like I said, it's been a busy several days. But one thing I did catch, Bolsonaro mentioned uh, something I, I find just particularly fascinating, and that is crediting a decrease in violent crime in Brazil during his time in office to having worked to change the laws so that Brazilians are lawfully permitted to use their firearms in self-defense anywhere on their property. Now, I did a quick survey of what the gun laws are and what the skinny is on Bolsonaro using Wikipedia, which I trust about as far as I can throw it, which is not very far at all because uh, it's a web page. I don't even know how you would throw a web page. But nevertheless, according to Wikipedia, the... Gun laws in Brazil, even as Bolsonaro has expanded uh, government recognition of the right to self-defense using a firearm, they're still uh, unacceptable, unacceptably restrictive, in my view, as an American, as a citizen of these United States of America, I should note. Brazilians are Americans after a fashion as well, I suppose, but they don't call themselves Americans per se. We call ourselves Americans and... uh, so there, I, I changed my mind. We're, we're Americans. That's what we are. Uh, all the rest of you who inhabit this hemisphere, you don't typically call yourselves Americans. But alas, I digress. An interesting thing, nevertheless, even though Bolsonaro's expansion of government recognition of gun rights, and that's the way I'll put it, is better than it was, but still woefully inadequate compared to what I believe is more proper, as God intended, uh, more American uh, vis-a-vis the United States of America, the United States Constitution and Bill of Rights. According to Statista, between 2006 and 2017, the homicide rate in Brazil rose from 26.61 to 31.6 per 100,000 inhabitants. And that's a pretty sharp increase over the course of 11 years. But get this, Bolsonaro ran for president in 2018. He took office in 2019. In 2018, the homicide rate dropped from 31.6 the year before to 27.8. And then in 2019, the year Bolsonaro took office, it dropped to 21.65 per 100,000. So again, just to reiterate, the year he ran for office, the murder rate dropped 4.2 points. The year he took office, it dropped a further 6.15 points. That's a total of 10.35 points in two years, 
down from 31.6 per 100,000 inhabitants the year before Bolsonaro ran. What's what's this due to? Could this be due to a fearful expectation on the part of criminals that Brazil was about to get a president who was tough on crime? I would say quite possibly. Could it also be due to law-abiding citizens across the country being more assertive, feeling more empowered by Bolsonaro's example? I think so. And it could be both, and it could be other things besides, but I think both probably make up the lion's share of that drop in the homicide rate. So again, this is an important thing to note. It's also important to look at the cities and jurisdictions here in the U.S. where gun laws are most restrictive. Look at the rate of violent crime committed with a firearm in those cities and jurisdictions. Is it higher or lower? And also, which is the chicken and which is the egg? Don't go wagging the dog with regards to gun control and saying, ah, well, the gun control is needed because the violent crime is so high. Well, it could be that the violent crime is so high because of gun control measures and other things that are of a piece philosophically, socially, theologically, actually, as well. But on a related note, Lauren and I watched the gubernatorial debate. That's a fun word to say, gubernatorial debate. Uh, We watched California's between current Democrat Governor Gavin Newsom and Republican State Senator, longtime uh, State Senator Brian Dahl on Epoch TV Sunday night. Epoch TV is a a subsidiary or branch of Epoch Times. And if you're subscribed, at least you can stay logged in and you can watch things that they've got on there. They've got some really good stuff actually in their library, journalism wise, commentary wise, interviews wise, really good stuff. But we watched this debate and a few things really stood out to me. One of them being Gavin Newsom is very aggressive. I've never seen him debate before. I've seen him speak here and there and I've seen still photos of him or short clips while somebody else was talking over just a, you know, a moving image of his face or him walking around, shaking hands or whatever. But I'm really struck by how hard he hits and how quick and ready a command of numbers and statistics he has. He talks very fast in a way that is clearly designed to overwhelm both his debate opponent and you, the audience of voters tuning in. It's basically a verbal blitzkrieg. The big idea you're supposed to take away from his tactic, his approach, is he's in control and you should just let him keep on being governor of California. And if he wants to be the next president of the United States, you should let him do that as well. But unfortunately, by contrast, Brian Dahl, the Republican candidate, looked unprepared. His pacing was off. He seemed to lose confidence. Uh, confidence. He seemed to lose conviction several times throughout the debate. He would start a sentence and then he would interrupt himself with a lot of hemming and hawing. And then he would start a new sentence halfway through as if he was moderating and toning himself down in real time. And this had the effect of causing him to appear as though he was just making it all up as he goes, or as if he was waffling on issues even before he had 
actually stated his position. He would get halfway through stating his position, and then he would waffle in real time for the audience uh, there and for the audience at home to see. And this is just not a good look. It's not a good look. It, it comes across as though he's not really been paying close attention or he doesn't really know what he stands for or he's afraid to admit what he really stands for. And none of those things are very attractive in a political candidate, Republican or no. Uh, even though he's not Gavin Newsom, uh, he needs a little bit more to run on than just being not Gavin Newsom. But I'm sorry to say, he looked going into that debate like the boxer who's been told in the locker room before he goes out that he's supposed to lose. He looked like somebody who was voluntold he was going to run as the Republican candidate with zero chance of actually becoming governor of California. And maybe I'm imagining things. Maybe I am. Maybe you think that's crazy talk, but Dahl did not look to me like somebody who expects to win and he didn't show up looking prepared to win, in my opinion. But one claim Newsom made in answer to Dahl criticizing the increase in criminal activity in California under Democrats was that most of the states with the highest homicide rate in the U.S. voted for Donald Trump to be reelected to the White House in 2020. So he made this claim a couple of times. The Republican candidate didn't seem to know what to do with it, which is very unfortunate. Again, if you're running for governor of a major state like California, you should probably do your research and be prepared for a claim like this to crop up. But I looked it up. I looked it up at cdc.gov. Take that with a grain of salt as well. Maybe a bit better than Wikipedia, but uh, sure enough, according to CDC's statistics, seven of the 10 states with the highest homicide rates in 2020 are in the deep South, and they did indeed go to Donald Trump in 2020. Mississippi comes in at number one, 20.5. Louisiana, number two, 19.9. Alabama, number three, 14.2. Missouri, number four, 14.0. Arkansas, number five, 13.0. South Carolina, number six, at 12.0. Tennessee has 11.5 to put it at the number seven slot. Then there's Maryland at 11.4. Illinois at 11.2, New Mexico in 10th place at 9.1. So I'm looking at these and I'm thinking, boy, howdy, I wonder what is the deal, right? What is the deal? What would explain this possibly? Because these are really uh, unfortunate stats and not a good look. If these are states that went to Donald Trump, it's not a good look that they've got such high murder rates. And the insinuation that Gavin Newsom is trying to lay down is that actually the highest crime states in the U.S. are all majority Republican because Republicans are dangerous. Come to California where it's safe, which is not, which, which is not true and ridiculous actually. But according to the CDC's website, overall, the state of California has uh, not bad stats per 100,000. What you have to do, actually, though, is you've got to drill down deeper to what makes up the preponderance, the lion's share of 
those homicide rates. That's what you've got to do. You see Mississippi at number one with 20.5. You see Louisiana at number two with 19.9. You see eight, nine, and 10 on this list being states that went to Joe Biden, Maryland, Illinois, New Mexico, having about half the homicide rate that Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama have. And it's not a good look for Republicans. It's not a good look for conservatives. So what's the deal? A couple of things, a couple of things. For one, might I just suggest that Democrats in majority red states, if the way that they interact when they even have a minority of Republicans around them is any indication, Democrats in majority red states could possibly be as unhinged as possible, as crazy as possible, all the crazier than when they are in a safe blue stronghold, as it's known. That's a possibility. Another possibility is, to Gavin Newsom's point, that it really is just Republicans owning all these guns and being racists and only caring about money and property and not about people. And so, of course, Republican states, Republican Trump voting MAGA extremists are going to be more violent. Of course they are. Didn't you see January 6th? Of course they're more violent. So that's another possible explanation. There's another possible explanation is coming up on 2020 through COVID. You got a lot of dangerous rednecks who just lost it. They just snapped in 2020 in Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, Missouri, Arkansas, South Carolina, and Tennessee. It's another possibility. A still third possibility, and this was my hunch, is that these stats have something to do with the largest cities in each one of these states. As it turns out, and I did some digging, I did some research, there does seem to be a correlation. I've got a list here of some of the biggest cities in these 10 states and where they ranked in terms of homicide rate per capita. And let me just say from the outset, these cities in comparison with Brazil even before Bolsonaro ran for president, uh, these cities look on paper like they must be some of the most dangerous places on earth. Pretty spooky stuff. Coming in at number one, Jackson, Mississippi. Mississippi is number one on the list, according to the CDC, Jackson, Mississippi. According to WLBT, the local NBC News affiliate in Jackson, that city had a homicide rate per capita in 2021 of 99.5, the highest of any city that year. That is to say almost 100 people out of every 100,000 people were murdered in 2021. So to put this in perspective, take a thousand people and out of a thousand people in Jackson, Mississippi, one of them in 2021 got murdered. That's wild. That's crazy. Also, might I just point out that the mayor since 2017 has been a certain Shockwe Antar Lamumba, a Democrat. Not just a Democrat, but also 
the seventh consecutive African-American to hold that position, according to Wikipedia. As much bad press as the Deep South gets for being racist, it's a curious thing that this mayor, a Democrat since 2017 in office, is the seventh in a row African-American to hold the position. It's a very curious thing, according to Wikipedia. Very curious. How much does Jackson, Mississippi's homicide rate skew the state of Mississippi's homicide rate? That's something to ponder. It really is. Moving on, though, in the number two spot, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Their mayor, since 2017 as well, is a certain Sharon Weston Broom, also a Democrat. Per CBS News, going off the FBI's 2019 crime in the United States data, Baton Rouge had the sixth highest murder rate of any major American city at 31.72 per 100,000 residents. Pretty much Brazil the year before Bolsonaro ran for president. That's Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Sixth highest murder rate of any major American city, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And again, Louisiana as a state, according to the CDC, comes in at number two. But it doesn't just have Baton Rouge. It also has New Orleans or New Orleans. But most people say New Orleans with good reason. Latoya Cantrell has been the mayor of New Orleans since 2018. She is also a Democrat. Per CBS News, the seventh highest murder rate of any major American city is an honor that belongs to LaToya Cantrell's city. 30.67 per 100,000 residents are murdered. Next up, Birmingham, Alabama. Alabama comes in at the number three spot in 2020 for homicide rate. Per the CDC, Birmingham, one of the biggest cities, if not the biggest city, I think it actually is the biggest city in Alabama, the third highest murder rate of any major American city at 50.62 per 100,000 residents. Also, since 2017, Mayor Randall Woodfin, Democrat, has presided. Next up, number five, Kansas City, Missouri. And these are ranked in order of what state they're in, not necessarily whether they're the highest or the lowest murder rate compared with other major American cities, to be clear. But Kansas City, Missouri. Quentin Lucas has been the mayor there since 2019. Per CBS News, Kansas City had the eighth highest murder rate of any major American city at 29.88 per 100,000. In 2019. And did I mention that Quentin Lucas is a Democrat? I don't know if I mentioned that. St. Louis, Missouri also has a Democrat mayor since 2017. It's amazing how many of these mayors have been mayor since 2017, but nevertheless, Lida Cruson from 2017, actually, she left office in 2021, but she definitely made it through the period that Gavin Newsom is pointing out to try and hang Republicans for being violent extremists. Lida Crusom presided over St. Louis, Missouri from 2017 to 2021. St. Louis, Missouri had the 
highest murder rate of any major American city in 2019 at 64.54 per 100,000 residents. Next up, Little Rock, Arkansas. Frank Scott Jr., Democrat mayor since 2019. Per CBS News, Little Rock had the 24th highest murder rate of any major American city at 19.15 per 100,000. Charleston, South Carolina, number eight. John Tecklenburg, Democrat mayor since 2016. 14th highest murder rate in 2019 at 22.55 per 100,000. Columbia, South Carolina, number nine. Stephen K. Benjamin, Democrat since 2010, mayor of Columbia, South Carolina. 17th highest murder rate of any major American city at 21.68. Then there's Knoxville, Democrat mayor since 2019, India Kincannon, coming in at 62nd highest murder rate with 11.66. Then there's Nashville, Tennessee, John Cooper, Democrat since 2019, 59th highest murder rate at 12.8. Then there's Andy Burke, who's Democrat mayor of Chattanooga, Tennessee, during this time span that Gavin Newsom is pointing to. And the CDC stats are highlighting 2013 to 2021. He was the mayor presiding over the 29th deadliest by murder rate major American city at 18.15 per 100,000 residents, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And there's Memphis, Tennessee. Since 2016, Jim Strickland has been the mayor there. Memphis has the ninth highest murder rate at 29.21 back in 2019. Jim Strickland, you'll be shocked, a Democrat. Brandon Scott, Democrat mayor since 2020, Baltimore, Maryland. Baltimore has the second highest murder rate of any major American city at 58.27 per 100,000 residents. Then there's Chicago, Illinois, Lori Lightfoot, mayor since 2019, very much a Democrat. 18th highest murder rate of any major American city at 18.26 per 100,000. Number 16, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Tim Keller, I didn't realize he was the mayor of Albuquerque. No relation, I'm sure. Tim Keller, Democrat mayor since 2017. Albuquerque has the 41st highest murder rate of any major American city at 14.95 per 100,000 residents in 2019. And the big idea here, the big point is, these big cities skew the average of the states in which they reside heavily. Because you can't just look at the city itself. You have to look at the outlying area. You don't just have a a sudden drop-off, like there's no murder at all in the area it gradually dissipates the further away from these big cities you get if the homicide rate in those states is significantly lower, which in every case it is, compared with these big cities. So what you have here is you have Democrat mayors of the centers of murder in these respective states. Democrat mayors. If you want to say that the state voted Republican in 2020, Also, please don't leave out the fact, the detail, that what skews the results in those states is Democrat-run cities in those states. Please and thank you. But all of this might be beside the point, possibly, in connection with 
the next thing I'm going to tell you about. The next story, and this one's a bit dated, actually. It's from before I was born. My friend Alex Cassetta sent it to me. He said his father had sent it to him. It was a link to a segment from 1994 that was aired on Dr. James Dobson's program, Focus on the Family. I'll include a link in the episode description. You can check it out. Watch or listen to it more to the point for yourself. There's no real video. It's just a picture of Margie Mayfield's face while you hear the audio from the radio program. But Margie Mayfield talks at length about her experience being abducted by serial murderer and rapist Stephen Moran in San Antonio, Texas back in 1981. And also, as you might have guessed, how she miraculously escaped, becoming the last of his four dozen victims in 12 years. Two big takeaways from her story. One, she repeatedly gives credit to the Spirit of God and to the Holy Scriptures for guiding her and emboldening her during the 12 hours she was a hostage of Stephen Moran. Alex, my friend, asks what I make of this story, and I'd like to say a few things. One, first off, I agree with Dr. Dobson's characterization, introducing the audio of Mrs. Mayfield's testimony, that it is incredible. It's it's an incredible story. No two ways about it. Second, the kind of incredible story that it is reminds me of a conversation we had around the dinner table with my grandparents a little over a decade ago when I was staying with them after coming back to Montana to look for a job in the oil and gas industry, then a place to rent, to move my family out. Somehow or another, my grandparents Mullet and I and my aunt and my cousin got to talking about self-defense. And both my Mullet grandparents, having been raised Mennonite, grandma was saying she doesn't like guns at all. She doesn't need one. She's since passed away, so she definitely doesn't need one anymore. But at the time, I asked her, what she would do if somebody broke into the house in the middle of the night. Her answer was that she would tell them about Jesus and quote the Bible. Now, whatever I may personally believe about whether it's necessary to resign ourselves to that narrow a range of options or be pacifistic and committed to nonviolence, in even that kind of a circumstance, I hold a genuine respect in my heart for my grandmother who had thought through this scenario I was describing and was at peace with however her plan, her commitment might turn out for her. It seemed to me from the way that she answered, how she answered, how quickly she answered, she had thought about this. She had thought about how a burglar in such a case might either run away or come to faith in Christ or even kill her. And she seemed genuinely to be at peace with any of those three outcomes being the result. If that was the Lord's will, but she was equally convicted. She was equally sure that it was not the Lord's will that she should own a firearm and use deadly force against somebody who might break into the house in the middle of the night. Now, a funny story, funny anecdote, a story often told at mullet family reunions, certainly by my 
grandfather before he passed away, but even since, because all of us have heard it, was how one night my grandmother went back to the RV. They were parked at somebody's house, but she went back into the RV to get something that they needed to bring inside for the night, her and my grandpa. And she heard a rustling in the RV like somebody was in there, like somebody was trying to steal something from them and had snuck in. And my grandmother apparently yelled out in a pretty stern and commanding voice, you get out of here. And they did. And they did. So she didn't use the sawed off shotgun that grandpa had, (laughs) but she did all right. She, she, (laughs) she scared whoever it was, uh, well and truly, but nevertheless, on a serious note, what do we do with the conviction that some Christians have that it is never okay to use deadly force in defense of yourself or someone else who is innocent, who's being attacked violently by a murderer, a rapist, a robber? Consider Luke six twenty-seven through 36 in the English Standard Version. Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. What do we do with that? To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, a couple of things. One, let me point out that someone slapping you on the cheek is not typically a threat to your life. It's not going to kill you. It'll make you mad. It will hurt your feelings. It will bruise your ego. It will really, really upset you. But you'll live. It's an insult. It's a degradation of your value as a person. It goes hand in hand with Jesus saying, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. The folks who are your enemies, not just opportunists looking for a quick buck, thinking you look like an easy victim. No, no. Your enemies, people who hate you, who curse you, who abuse you. Folks who know you and you know them and they can't stand you. They hate everything you stand for and they're taunting you. They're hoping that you rise to the taunt and fight back so they can destroy you. It's a trap. It's bait. Jesus says, 
to one who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. But what do we make of Romans 13? And you might say, well, Garrett, for one thing, I make of that, that if the government tells us to turn in our guns, we have a responsibility to obey and turn in our guns. If the government tells us we're not allowed to buy, what was the thing Biden said the other day? Eight bullets in a round or something like that. Look it up. Just about certain that that's exactly what he said. If the president of the United States tells you you're not allowed to have eight bullets in a round, well, that's an easy one, I guess, because it's not possible, so far as I know, unless you've got some kind of weird, frangible round, maybe. that Somebody probably makes that, I suppose. You shoot one bullet, and then it breaks into eight in midair on its way to the target, I suppose. Maybe kind of certain shotgun shot could qualify. Anyway, I don't think that's what he was talking about. Paul writes, Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. There you have it, right? There you have it. If the government tells me to turn in my guns, I got to turn in my guns. If Justin Trudeau comes down here, Gavin Newsom comes down here, he says, hand it over. Coloradans have a right to feel safe in their communities and in, in their homes. To feel it right up until somebody who didn't turn in their guns Breaks in in the middle of the night, I suppose. Or somebody without a gun who just has whatever's handy, like they're a greater physical size, perhaps, or some blunt instrument. Or even one of those uh, elastic bands with the hard plastic piece that comes in the kit for your uh, microphone mount. You know, like that that's the big idea, right? That's the big idea I'm trying to communicate here is literally anything can be a weapon in the hands of somebody who wants a weapon. But if you take the ability to equalize away from, let's say, women, small men, who rules? Who runs roughshod, especially if you're also at the same time defunding the police? hiring social uh, workers instead of law enforcement, creating restrictions not on criminals, but on law enforcement and law-abiding citizens. What do you think the outcome is? More and more lawlessness. Exactly what you see borne out in the stats in Democrat-run strongholds across the U.S. What you get is more crime, not less crime, when you ban guns. And it's not workable, it's not feasible to say 
to the bison, you need to turn in your horns and your hooves when the wolves hold on to their fangs and their claws and their appetite and their nature. What I see in Romans 13 is evidence justifying Margie Mayfield having told law enforcement where they could find her kidnapper, Stephen Moran. I see evidence in Romans 13 of the decency and goodness of men with guns going and taking Stephen Moran into custody. I mean, consider this. This man had murdered a woman who looked very much like Margie Mayfield earlier that day as he was trying to steal her vehicle. And then he comes across Margie Mayfield. And Margie Mayfield is a housewife, a devout Christian. She memorizes scripture. She has a little notebook of scripture and devotionals and sermons on tape that she's left the house with. And then this FBI's most wanted top 10 fugitive murderer, rapist, points a gun at her and says, if you move, I'll kill you. And what does she do? She tells him about Jesus. She rebukes the demonic forces at work in his heart and in his mind. She prays with him. She quotes scripture to him. She tells him about Jesus. And that's half the reason why law enforcement is able to apprehend him. Because he's still at the bus station when they show up. After she gets home to find law enforcement at her husband talking about where she might be, where was she last seen, where is she typically to be found. When law enforcement showed up, he was still there at the bus station waiting for the bus, reading the book of scripture that she had given him. So then he turns himself in peaceably. He's got knives, he's got guns. He had planned earlier that day that if law enforcement closed in on him, he'd have a shootout and then he'd kill himself if he couldn't get away. But he didn't. He surrendered peacefully. And then he stood trial. And then he was convicted. And he was sentenced to death. And then he was executed. And all these things can be true at the same time. That it was good that Margie Mayfield preached the gospel to this man. And was brave and courageous and provided a good testimony. It can be good that she told him about Jesus and prayed with him and quoted scripture to him, and also good that she told law enforcement where he was last seen. Even knowing, or at least I would know, there's a possibility that there's going to be a shootout and he's going to be killed. Or he's going to go to prison, and then he's going to stand trial, and then he's possibly going to get put to death. He was the sixth convict in Texas history to be executed through lethal injection, as I understand it convicted of two counts of capital murder in Texas, also first-degree murder in Colorado, and second-degree kidnapping in Colorado. He murdered in Nevada, Colorado, Texas. Other states are suspected besides. And it was good that he was stopped. It was good that he had the gospel preached to him. It was also good that he was arrested and went to court and stood trial and was convicted and was put to death. I think the difficult thing here is that a lot of us 
have half read our Bibles. So we've read, on the one hand, many of us, the half that talks about justice. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But maybe not the addendum that Jesus offers in the Sermon on the Mount. But I say unto you, not to teach otherwise to disobey or to ignore or to be lawless, but to clarify what the law is really about, what it's really getting at, which is your heart, which is my heart. A lot of us have half read our Bible with regards to the half that says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And yes, that half is part of all scripture that is breathed out by God and profitable, that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. So also, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also, is part of all scripture that is breathed out by God and profitable. And the important thing that we need to understand and grapple with that is difficult and challenging, but necessary, essential even, to understand Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. We need to grapple with how all these things relate to Ecclesiastes, that there is a time and a season for everything under heaven. There is a time for war. There is a time for peace. There is a time to embrace. There's a time to refrain from embracing. There's a time to heal, and there's a time to kill. There's a time to bind, and there's a time to loose binds. There's a time and a season for telling a serial murderer and a serial rapist about Jesus. And there's also a time for putting a serial murderer and a serial rapist to death. And these things are not contradictory, but they are difficult. So one of the things that grieved me about Governor Newsom and the Republican candidate, State Senator Dahl, in the debate for who will be the governor of California. At one point, the Republican candidate was asked about the death penalty and also asked about his pro-life views. And in both cases, he waffled. And that's a bad look. Again, if I might just say so, it's a bad look for Republicans. It's a bad look for conservatives. It's a bad look for Christians. We really need to grapple with what our apologetic is regarding the unborn. We really need to grapple with what our apologetic is with regards to the death penalty. It's not enough to latch on to a very superficial understanding that thou shalt not kill. Ah, see, and this is the gotcha. This is the gotcha from the left. Thou shalt not kill. So you're against abortion, but you're for the death penalty? What? Which is it? Au contraire, Mesami. The moment unborn infants become serial rapists and serial murderers, then come back and ask that question. Crime and punishment. That unborn child has committed no crime for which they should be punished. Shedding their blood is shedding innocent blood, which is on the short list of things that God hates and he says are abominable to him. He hates, hates, hates those who shed innocent blood. He hates them. And then you get Governor Newsom on the debate stage saying that any restrictions whatsoever on abortion in the state of California are antithetical to their values, prepare to fall into the ocean if that's how you want to be. California just recently 
shrank for quite possibly, if I'm not mistaken, the first time in California history since the arrival of Europeans. California shrank population-wise because a lot of Californians, as Brian Dahl was pointing out, have been fleeing the state because it's crazy town. It's crazy that the homeless population has exploded. And all Governor Newsom can say when he's challenged on it is that they've thrown a lot of money at taking good care of the homeless people. And also the Republicans have opposed. Republicans like Brian Dahl have opposed their irresponsible spending programs to just throw money at problems they themselves have created. You promote vice. You drive away businesses that would provide gainful employment. You drive up taxes. You make energy and water scarce and therefore prohibitively expensive. You destroy the education system. You encourage sin and folly and self-destruction. But please, by all means, tell me about how good a care you're taking of the homeless people. It's wickedness. But Brian Dahl is asked, what in his pro-life position squares with also being for the death penalty? And he doesn't have an answer. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And Democrats like Gavin Newsom start smoking and sizzling They start shrieking at the sky about separation of church and state. Somebody ought to sprinkle him with some holy water and just see what happens. I'm just saying. Do justice. If someone commits a murder, then by man, their life is forfeit. Their life should be taken because they've taken someone else's life. And this is not the same thing as vengeance. It's justice. Vengeance is when somebody upsets you and hurts you and you're going to get them back. Justice is when somebody gets what they deserve, good or bad. Rewards for those who do what is good, Romans 13, as the governing authority is given the sword and bears the sword for a reason, to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil. The sword is given to the governing authority to kill or to threaten death, yes, and not for no reason, and not without biblical precedent, ample quantities of biblical precedent. I think it's beautiful that Margie Mayfield trusted God, was led by the Holy Spirit, as she says, was led by the scriptures, and had memorized them, had committed them to heart, and quoted them, showed no fear. I think that's marvelous, and that's wonderful, and that is incredible. I also think it's very good that law enforcement was ready to go and apprehend Steve Morin. Or what will we say? Would it be better if the law enforcement officers had been more like the cops waiting outside of the school in Uvalde, Texas? Would that have been better? See, there's something evil about that as well. Not just that some sick and twisted person would go and murder dozens of innocent women and children but that men in a position to put a stop to it would stand by and stand down and prevent anybody else from going and dealing with it either. There's something evil and corrupt about that, that as Christians, we need an apologetic for. And I don't mean apologetic like we need to be saying, I'm sorry, 
I'm sorry that I believe these things that you find distasteful and that upset you and really harsh your groove and cramp your style. No, no, no. I mean, of an apologetic, like you can give a reasoned defense of your Christian faith in light of the scriptures, take a page from Augustine's City of God, for example. That's the whole premise of the City of God, to give an apologetic. You know, I was just talking with my friend Lucas Abernathy on Sunday, and he sent me something I want to delve into in the next episode, Lord willing. It has to do with the premiere of the province of Alberta, Canada, having recently made some statements regarding uh, COVID vaccination, mask mandates, lockdowns, et cetera, et cetera, those who were opposed to such, how they were treated, whether they lost their jobs, gainful employment, were ostracized, et cetera, et cetera. But that's for another episode. For the purposes of our discussion, I was talking with Lucas about some courses he's taking, some Christian life and thought, biblical training, seminary-type courses he's taking. And he said in this one class, they're getting into Augustine and how remarkable it is that Augustine wrote a million words. Think about that. That's a lot of words. That's a lot of words. A million words. City of God, I am not quite sure how many it is. It's got to be a couple hundred thousand. I should look it up. Yep, sure enough. I was going to (laughs) guess. I just looked it up. The calculation from readinglength.com, based on page count, is 201,000 words. I don't know if that's accurate, but that's a lot. That's a lot of words. What is the city of God about? It's an apologetic speaking directly to the accusation from pagan Romans against Christians, and more to the point, against Christianity itself. Very often, we Christians in the 21st century, in the United States of America, we get so hung up on trying to apologize for the misdeeds, misbehavior of previous generations of so-called Christians or actual Christians, if they said something or did something or didn't do something or didn't say something, that our peers find offensive. We're trying to backpedal. We're trying to say, oh, well, you know, nobody's perfect. And, you know, like, but the the grace of God and all this kind of like, sorry, like, I'm sure if they were alive today, they wouldn't say those kinds of things. And you got to give them a little grace and all that. But you know what? The big idea behind Augustine's city of God is not just that the gospel is being maligned with the chief claim being, by the pagans, that Christianity softened Rome, deprived Rome of her manly vigor, virtue, strength, softened her up for barbarian conquest. No, no. Inseparable from that accusation is the accusation that Christians, more to the point, are to blame. Christians. It's not just Christianity that is anti-science. It's Christians who are accused in our day of being anti-science. It wasn't just Christianity in Augustine's day that was being maligned as the cause of the fall of the Roman Empire to the barbarians. It was Christians more specifically, and not for no reason, but to drive a wedge between those Christians and their Christianity, so they would no longer be Christians, or to drive a wedge between those Christians and the public square 
drive them from the public square because we don't want to be bothered by their testimony or even just their example. Augustine grappled with these things his whole life long, and we should too. And it isn't to say that we achieve a perfect peace. If you go back to my last episode, talking about evangelicals and Catholics together, and yes, I realize I named the episode, if you caught it, I wonder how many of you caught it, I named the episode Evangelicals and Christians Together. I know I did. And that ruffles some feathers, probably, and it causes probably other people to think, boy, Garrett's really slipping, huh? I can explain more what I mean in the future, but I'm not going to get off track at the moment. If you go back to that episode and you check it out, I say I really do agree with a point that evangelicals and Catholics together make in their statement, fear God and honor the emperor. With regards to Augustine's City of God, they draw attention, if we will listen, to the way that Augustine didn't see peace in an earthly sense or in the city of man as being worthless just because it's qualitatively different and imperfect compared to the peace in the city of God, God's peace, God's perfect peace, which transcends understanding. Augustine didn't count it worthless that we would achieve some peace here on earth, imperfect though it may be, still honoring God, thereby. He didn't count it worthless. We shouldn't either. And yes, to answer the question, that is the premise of this episode. I look at the worldview in cities run by Democrats, dominated by the ideology of progressivism, secular humanism, liberalism, godlessness. I look at the ideology. I look at the philosophy and the anthropology the approach to family life and business and civics and religion. And I think it's a very evil thing for some Democrat who's a governor of a state that people are fleeing in droves because of to then turn around and imply that all of the sins and faults of Democrat mayors and Democrat cities across the U.S., are actually the fault of the states that surround those Democrat-run cities. The states that are rural would significantly bring down the murder rate, the crime rate, if not for the cities run by Democrats in their midst. Which isn't to say that we should get rid of the cities. It is to say we should get rid of the Democrats. We should stop being Democrats if you're a Democrat. We should stop voting for Democrats if you're voting for Democrats. If you are a Democrat, repent. It's a wicked party that you belong to. It's an abomination systematically across the board. And you being able to count noses doesn't overrule God's judgment. And it won't forestall it. That's not the way God's divine justice works. You can't count noses and get at truth or goodness or beauty that way. As should be clear from the track record, decades long, in your jurisdictions. And yes, again, going back to reasons why some of these states might have such high crime rates, even though they voted for Donald Trump, I would refer you back to the Civil War, the first Civil War, which we might have a repeat of, or 2.0, 
sequel to in the coming years and decades. Whatever some people think. My brother thinks that's ridiculous. Last I heard. But I think I hear a lot of people talking about it like it could happen. So I'm not going to rule it out. And it did happen. And it does happen. It does happen to people and to nations. It has happened to ours. I'm looking at Ron Chernow's biography of Grant right now. That wouldn't be on my shelf if civil wars don't happen or didn't happen. But look at the first civil war and look at the states and jurisdictions where the fighting was the bloodiest, cruelest, most merciless, where it was neighbor against neighbor. It was in states where it was very much up for grabs. There's two ways that states that are very mixed, very evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats. There's two ways that they can go. One is for the Republicans and Democrats both alike to become much, much more moderate and centrist. Another option is that they all take their respective positions and they have at each other. And historically, it's been the Democrats having at the Republicans. True story. There's a robust literature documenting before the Civil War, during the Civil War, after the Civil War. Reconstruction is its own thing. But look at the story down in Florida of a guy wearing a Marco Rubio t-shirt, going around knocking on doors, canvassing, trying to drum up support, talk to people about voting for Marco Rubio in the upcoming election, beaten savagely. Show me where that's happening to Democrats and Republicans are the culprits. Do, please. I'll wait. My email address is garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. You can find me on Facebook as well or Instagram. Can't find me on Twitter anymore because I'm shadow banned. Plus, also suspended. My 12-hour suspension is going on close to eight months now. Grant was a great president in part because he went to war against the KKK as Democrats were trying to wage terrorist guerrilla campaigns against Republican candidates, black Republican candidates in the South. The KKK was trying to terrorize and murder whites who were Republicans in their jurisdictions. Grant went to war against that. And moderate Republicans back then, as now, asked, why can't we all just get along? You know what? That attitude of making peace on any terms whatsoever, is no peace at all. It's peace, peace, when there is no peace. We're talking about real men and women being destroyed, being murdered, raped, robbed, brutalized. Those who know the truth need to speak the truth clearly, confidently, because they love God and they love their neighbor. Those who know what is good to do need to do what is good, not to be seen by men and rewarded by men, but to be seen by their Father in heaven, so that all men might see their good works and glorify their Father in heaven. There is such a thing as right and wrong. There is such a thing as true and false. We are not all equally worthwhile. We are not all equally virtuous. We are not all equally valid in our positions and claims. Some, as we read about in the New Testament, who would drag the Christians of Thessalonica before the city council and say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Some 
are, as God's word attests, worthless men. And we're not supposed to be worthless men. We're supposed to be of a more noble sort, searching the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. Listen, yes, be quick to listen. Slow to speak, slow to become angry. It's a very tall order, especially these days. It's a very difficult task, but by God's grace, we can pursue that task. We can endeavor to embody those virtues. By God's grace, we can love God and our neighbor by obedience to that. And we can be of a more noble sort. And we should, and we need to be. That is part of seeking the welfare of the city to which Yahweh our God has brought us in our exile, that we would promote virtue in public, not to deprive the public of virtue. That is what private virtue really is. It's a privation or deprivation of public good, that we would make goodness private entirely. Now, if you can't be good in public without having your motives corrupted, then do. Be secretive about it. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing when you give Pray in secret, but we need to let our light so shine before all men, so that for the purpose of, to the end of, all people, all men, seeing our good works and glorifying our Father in heaven. Which is to say, we must recognize that there's a difference, there's a distinction between what God loves and what he hates, what is good according to God and what is evil, what is true according to God and what is false, what is beautiful and what is evil. We should not conflate. But I've got to run. Speaking of goodness, truth, beauty, I've got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. By the way, too, drop me a line. Let me know. If you thought this episode sounded any better quality-wise, there might be a reason. I am recording this episode for the first time with a special new accessory It basically surrounds the entire Blue Yeti microphone I've got. It's made by a company called IQLQPQ, I guess. Uh, It wasn't very expensive. There was a much more expensive one that I ended up deciding to not get. Uh, But this one is uh, essentially it's an upgraded pop filter. Thick wind shield pop filter, acoustic filter. It uh, should reduce noise, reflections, reverberations off of hard surfaces uh, in my office. Also, maybe possibly the sound of my children or dogs barking in the backyard or people running their chainsaws all at the same time as dogs are barking and my kids are playing in the backyard. All that kind of stuff. Hopefully, you will get less of as I'm recording in the middle of the day if I need to as the spirit leads but uh in any event i gotta run as always thank you for listening until next time god bless
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.